This is Paige, the co-host of Giggly Squad, and I want to tell you about a company that I've been loving, Olive and June. Olive and June gives you everything that you need for a salon-quality manicure in one box. And if you break it down, it really comes out to $2 a manicure, which is absolutely insane. It's also so easy to get salon-worthy nails at home with Olive and June. The difference between how your nails used to look when you did them yourself and now with the Manny system is a complete game changer. The best thing about Olive and June, too, is it's a quick dry. Dries in about one minute, lasts for five days, and full coverage in up to one to two coats. Visit oliveandjune.com slash perfectmanny20 for 20% off your first system. That's oliveandjune.com slash perfectmanny20 for 20% off your first system. She was the queen of insult comedy. And then, just like that, she gave it up for good. Oh, it's good to see my old pal Pam Anderson here tonight. I love you, Pam. What's the story with your tits? They're big, they're small, they're big. You've had more surgeries than Roger Ebert. Oh. It's a roast, assholes. This is The Last Laugh. I'm Matt Wilstein from The Daily Beast, and that was the one and only Lisa Lampanelli roasting Pamela Anderson. If you're a fan of the Comedy Central roasts, like I am, you know Lisa. She was a constant presence at those iconic events for ages. And then, a little over two years ago, she did the unthinkable. She retired from comedy altogether. After making her big announcement on The Howard Stern Show, Lisa has only spoken a handful of times about her decision to walk away from her career and become a life coach, of all things. And she's never gone as in-depth about it as she does on this episode of The Last Laugh. It's truly a fascinating story about someone who felt like she had insulted enough celebrities and audience members in her life and wanted to find something more. We talked about what these last few years have been like for her, as well as why she decided to participate in a new documentary called Hysterical about the history of female comedians. And yes, we also got into the multiple times she roasted Donald Trump and the bizarre experience of competing on Celebrity Apprentice. This was just such a fun talk, so let's get right to it. Here's me with Lisa Lampanelli. Apparently, I saw the documentary last night, and I was like, God, these girls had a hard time. <laughs> oh, yeah? Was that was that your reaction to it, as, if, as, as in you didn't have a, as hard of a time as they did? Well, I mean, you know, that's what's interesting. I was in it in a very limited quantity, and I think a lot of it was that I somehow... The universe took care of me, that, and I don't mean that facetiously, that I never got me too I never got sexually harassed. I never got anybody following me into the bathroom and trying to, you know, yell at me about jokes. I had a hard enough time, you know, battling with men as far as when it went to, you know, arguing over material, things like that. But I think the narrative of the documentary really educated me so much because I was like, holy crap. Like I had this sweet spot that I think Joan Rivers had, even though she was way older than me and she's dead now, that we were kind of treated like male comics and we kind of did the male thing and nobody grabbed us. And Joan used to joke during Me Too about, you know, not Me Too, why not me? You yeah, know? yeah. <laughs> and, you know, again, you know, maybe it was because I was fat, but that's not, there's plenty of guys who like fat chicks. I have no idea. So I was very, 
impressed by the documentary. I was prepared not to be, by the way, because I'm so sick of doing documentaries that edit people badly. And I was like, oh, oh, you were worried about that? Not about me personally, but I was like, oh, are they going to be bad? And like, oh my God, it's so hard. No, it just told the truth. And I was like, wow, I, I enjoyed listening to those women's truths. Yeah. Yeah. No, so did I. I really enjoyed the documentary. Um, and there's so many funny women that they got to be in it. How did you end up uh, getting involved in it? I think this seems like so long ago because it's pre-COVID. And I think Jessica Kirsten, I think, had told Andrea Nevin to get in touch with me. And at the time I was really, even pre-COVID, I was like, not really, I was like, oh, I retired from stand-up. You know, I was so happy to not be doing anything, but I don't know, my gut told me to do it. And I go, well, it's one day out of my life. Like, <laughs> yeah. you know, like I can, I can handle this. So, cause I, I really just say no to so much stuff, but there was something about it. And also Jessica's a badass. And I was yeah, like, well, she's great. Isn't she amazing? Yeah. It's fun to watch too. For me, I've had so many of the women in the documentary on this podcast at this point, uh, Jessica Kirsten, Kathy Griffin, just a, a bunch of, a bunch of them. But I was so excited to have you on, uh, just cause I've been a, a fan of yours for so long and it's, you know, have we haven't seen much of you in recent years um, because, you know, as some people might know, you famously retired from comedy, which is something that nobody does. It's very, very unusual to to walk away from stand-up comedy. Well, I think to walk away from anything that you have this, you feel you had a calling for. And after I retired on the Stern Show, and I did it on purpose on Howard's show because, and thank God he let me do it and had me on to do that as like the final roast kind of thing. Um, I, I, it was taken very seriously because of him, because he gave it honor. And um, I think Dr. Drew, when I was on that right after the Stern thing, because it got a lot of attention and Dr. Drew had me on his show and he said, I said to him, I don't think I ever like was a quote unquote comic. I think I was just somebody trying to connect any way I could. And I happen to be funny. So, hey, let's try this. And he said, I bet more comics than you know, I, I feel exactly the same way. We just want to fill that hole. And, you know, once that thing stops filling the hole and you feel like you're filling the hole in your soul or heart with life, then you don't have to do something that doesn't bring you that much joy anymore. Yeah, you you talked about that, obviously, on Stern and, and a couple other times, you know, in the past few years. But I was curious if there was a sort of breaking point for you where you really, was there a moment where you said, you know what, this is this is not working for me. This is not giving me what I what it used to give me. No, what everybody wants the breaking point. <laughs> it's a really good story. Yeah, but the what it was is I had started doing a lot of spirituality work at Kripalu, which is a yoga and meditation place in the Berkshires. Berkshires is pretty famous, and I took a lot of workshops just to see what's going on with me. After my dad died, I had a lot of grief, and I was like, oh, how do you process grief? And their motto is notice without judgment. So during meditation, which I don't do, I suck at meditation. (laughs) I suck at all of that stuff. But you just notice the thought and let it go, and you don't judge yourself. So I started noticing without judgment that every time I'd have a show, I'd be like, Oh, yay, Sean. And I was like, oh my God, you got to start noticing if there's not the joy because the audience might start to see that. So get out before you hate it. I did the same thing with two marriages. I did the same (laughs) thing with, you know, comedy. And with, I do it now with other pursuits or friends. You get out before you hate it. And then there's honor in it. There's not that, oh, I'm going to behave like an a-hole to you and say, I want a divorce. You're going to just sit down and say, you know, when I'm retiring, I want a divorce. So it was really not a breaking point. It was more noticing. 
was it, did it feel very different from the beginning of when you started doing comedy? Were, were you very, did you find a lot of joy in it in those early, uh, early years? Probably the first 28 years were so joyful because the first time it's just like, you know, I say in my storytelling show now, which I do a, a few shows a year uh, that are just stories. I was like, it was like um, the first time I ate Betty Crocker chocolate frosting right out of the can. And you know me, I love it. <laughs> <laughs> but, no, but it's like, it felt just like that. It was just like that hit of like, oh, this is so much fun. And also then I turned into this insult comic, which was super badass because no women were really doing that. And I was like, oh, this is awesome. And then it's hit after hit. But you notice after like 28 years, you're like, huh. I did kind of everything a comic needs to do, which is sell out Radio City, Carnegie Hall, nominated for Grammys, but it still didn't fill the hole. And I'm like, oh, that's compassion and acceptance and self-love and connection with people and things. Not nature yet, because I'm not that woo-woo. But, you know, it's like, oh, okay, 28 good effing years that you feel like, yeah, like I'm into this. That's a pretty good career. Like that's most people's lives. Yeah, no, I think for mo- for people who know you from the roasts and from insult comedy and all that, there's this, there's this really intense contrast between the person that you were on stage and and hearing you now talk about self love and all these things. Did you feel like there was this anger to your comedy? That was that part of it that you were trying to let go of? That to say, you know, I this is because you really had this brand of of insults and and that kind of stuff. That you want to is that part of what made you want to move away from it? Well, I think there was not really anger on stage. Insults and anger are two different things. Like the insults were with love, which is why people would come back two or three times. It's like watching Rickles or listening to Stern. So Stern wouldn't have the whack pack call again and again if he abused them, but he makes fun of them. So I always knew how to do the insult comedy. I mean, I, it took me 20 years to learn how to do it to not hurt individuals' feelings. But um, okay, you do that and you have that intensity. But if you and I had like sat down as friends and talked in real life, even while I was in the comedy business, it would have been just like this. It was all that self-work. Like while I was going through, do, still doing comedy, I still went to like, you know, a, a rehab for food, you know, 28 day program that was spiritual. I went to like a codependency rehab. I was in therapy all the time. So I was never insane off stage. More of my anger came out off stage because, you know, I didn't know how to process it. That anger is just grief turned on its side. So I think, um, you know, my snapping on people on stage, that was probably when the anger came out, but not in the insults themselves. Like a heckler, I was like, I can't. Like there's <laughs> yeah. famous clips of me online. Yeah. I know TMZ home. has one that, that got, got a lot awesome. of attention. Yeah. yeah and that's the thing. <laughs> Those I'm never ashamed of because I'm like, oh, you started it. And like, even now I told the story on stage last weekend, I snapped on somebody three weeks ago, but he started it. And it was my, the only type of male I truly hate, which is the white entitled rich guy from <laughs> Connecticut. You know, it's such a stereotype that I hate him. And of course I judged him, but he threw the first punch as far as, you know, F you bitch. And I, it was, you know, they don't know who I am. So yeah. there we go. Then, then then you're off to the races. Which is, again, I should have been able to, from a higher place, said, you know what, this guy's going through something and de-escalated it, but it was on. So I'm, we're all imperfect. We're all just trying to get through. And I'm like, oh, okay, if I snap on people a little less than I used to, or last year, or the year before, or year before, then we're on the right track. Mm-hmm. One thing that did occur to me with you know your decision to walk away is whether you thought at all about sort of getting out before you could get 
quote canceled, which has become this huge thing now. And you, your comedy is very risky and is very, you make fun of all kinds of ethnicities and, and gay people and, you know, and kind of equal opportunity offender in that way, which is in the Don Rickles model. But did that occur to you at all? Like, do I, do I want to stop doing this before someone tries to, tries to cancel me? Well, no, because here's how clueless I was. You're going to die. How old are you? Are you 30-something? Yeah, 30s, yeah. Yeah. My nieces and nephews are all millennials, and I love them. Yeah, I'm an old millennial. That's what they, that's what they call me. Oh, okay. So they had to be like, I didn't even know about cancel culture. Like I was so just into doing, it was wrong, but so focused on myself and my career and my own pain and anger and grief that I was like, what? It's wrong to do a joke about retarded people? What? It's bad to say the N-word if you don't mean it? So (laughs) I was like still doing shows my way. I was kind of grandfathered in like Rickles was where you could still do it because you had your fans. So it didn't occur to me to retire because of that. But I think it's a happy accident that I did because when I do a show now, like I'm not compelled to do a lot of insults because I just don't, I didn't want to anymore. I, I think a good byproduct, I said it on the Wendy Williams show, the good byproduct of retiring for me is that there'll never be a trans kid in the audience that I hurt. There'll never be a gay kid. There'll never be, you know, even though that was so rare, like even if it's an accident, it's your fault and you should apologize. Like I'll always apologize to an individual. I've had incidences of people saying I hurt their feelings on stage and we like talk about it and stuff. I'll never apologize to a group because that's not a thing. Like a group doesn't have a thing, but if it's an individual, he's he or she is getting a chat and an apology for sure. In the documentary in Hysterical, um, you know, I think it's Nikki Glaser who really says like, oh my God, I... I, she she kind of envies you your ability uh-huh. to to walk away and I think it's I think it's true it's like there's so many comics who maybe would want to but feel like they can't or just you know physically or they just they're so compelled to keep doing comedy so I mean there must be something different about you in the fact in the way that you didn't feel compelled to it's not like maybe it's not a compulsion for you in the way it is for for so many of them well what's that great movie oh soul the animated yeah. movement is mm-hmm. There was a line in it that just made me sob when he said something about, I, I get choked up even now when he's like an obsession, when, when a talent or something becomes an obsession, like then it's bad. So his obsession to do that. And I'm like, oh my God, anything you become obsessed with is awful. So for, yeah, even though for 28 years, it was super fun. It was always like, oh, what's the next thing? It's never good enough. Like you sell out Radio City and the promoter out of the goodness of his heart, doesn't mean even a bad word, but he says, next Madison Square Garden. And you're like, oh, great. That wasn't even enough. There's always something bigger to to conquer. And then when there isn't, you're like, oh my God, what? I'm a failure because I didn't do Madison Square Garden. So, and people don't mean to put it on you, but they have hope for you. Like the Tonight Show 13 times. Oh, I think that's enough. Oh, (laughs) you know, standing for five dress fittings for award shows for five hours on my feet in shoes and just wanting to scream. Yeah, I think that's enough. So I think it's not um, comedy. I don't think was a compulsion towards the end. It was turned into a job. And then I go, those people paid money before I'm not enjoying that part. Let's go. It was so like, I mean, if if you don't notice your own life, you're not going to ever quit anything. Like I noticed my house this summer. I had a huge house on the beach. 
And I'm like, why does one person live in a huge house on the beach with two dogs that weigh combined weight of 15 pounds? This is (laughs) So you notice that there's no joy walking. If you love your freaking huge house, great. Walk to every room, have fun with it. Go, oh, isn't that cute? I love the view from 80 angles. I was sitting in the same couch seat every day. And I'm like, there's a one dent in the house and it's on that couch <laughs> yeah now this past year you can't even entertain or have anyone over so it's yeah well even worse. by the way that was <laughs> yeah. best because i love alone time so oh, really? it has been amazing for me oh great <laughs> oh yeah i'm an introvert i was a real extroverted introvert but yeah it's, it's literally i think these ladies can quit and it, i love nikki because she's so damn honest about everything i mean she's badass she's my favorite and um i remember when i retired she was sit after her show she was like i freaking admire that you were could walk away. And it's just noticing you're not as connected anymore. It's it's like a boyfriend or a girlfriend. So at the beginning, we were talking about how, you know, you were kind of treated maybe more as one of the guys than some of these other women, female comedians who were in this film. And I, I do think it maybe, you know, had something to do with this persona that you built for yourself and talking about people like Joan Rivers. And in the movie, they talks about Moms Mabley yes. and Phyllis Diller and this lineage of women who kind of created these very strong, specific personas. And even in the way that you used to dress and the and just your whole attitude. So can you just talk about how you developed that, how you thought about that at the beginning of your career, developing that kind of look and persona? What was weird is that I had a writing meeting with somebody who ended up to be one of the main writers of Everybody Loves Raymond. And this is like week eight of comedy for me. And he said, like, Roseanne didn't say to herself day one, I'm going to be the domestic goddess. It kind of develops. And again, you notice it. So I started noticing that I just wanted to talk to the crowd. So I would do like full 40 minute sets and not even have a joke, but just make fun of the crowd and have fun. I'm like, okay, so I'm going to listen to the tapes. Back in the day, you had cassette tapes. I'd listen to them on the way home and I'd go, that's what I'm laughing at is the crowd work. Okay. So if I see that, and again, I had the benefit of starting later in life, 30 years old, I started and I started hitting big ish at 40 ish. So I had the benefit of knowing you should notice your life. So I'd notice, wow, that's fucking great. Oh my God, I'm laughing in the car at what I said to that guy and what I could get away with. So then I just started pushing it more. And after about year seven, I was like, I'm a freaking insult comic. Like I literally have to get on a roast. And I got so lucky because the Friars Club, I was a member and I was a total unknown and they were like, producing the roast with Comedy Central time. And they're like, you have to put her on the roast of Chevy Chase. Like, we don't know her. And like, they forced me on it. And it (laughs) was like, I thought I was going to get recognized the day of the um, premiere. I like, I watched it from 11 to midnight went out my door in New York and thought, <laughs> Here I am. it was oh, yeah. hilarious. But I go, oh, this is what I'm meant to do for, I'm meant to do this type of comedy. I am pissed off there are not more black guys here. Ben Vereen was supposed to show up. I love Ben Vereen, because I bang black guys, that's my thing. <laughs> I do it all the time, it ain't by choice, I just haven't lost enough weight to get a white guy to f- me. <laughs> It's true. I have banged so many black guys, my neighbors think my apartment's a stop on the Underground Railroad. (laughs) Was that really your your big break in your mind? Was the Chevy Chase roast? No, it was the beginning. It wasn't when when I started. I didn't start selling tickets properly as a headliner until the Pam Anderson roast. Because what happened was with Chevy Chase was like 
a resume changer. That's what I call that. So it was seen by a bunch of people, but you know, it didn't make a dent. It wasn't like, oh, you know, will Netshell now sell out seven shows at the punchline in San Francisco? So what happens then is I'm smart because I used to be a journalist. So I'm like, oh, how can I work this stupid roast? Because I killed (laughs) and I got moved up in the order to number three when I actually performed 13th. So really, yeah, it was great. It was like very much like the coolest thing to ever happen to me. So then you go, okay, how can I work this? Oh, I know a lot about Chevy Chase and how he behaved at the roast that they cut out. Howard Stern Mm -hmm. hates him. He's an a-hole. He was badly behaved to all of us. He made us all miserable. Yeah, it's very infamous roast. He's probably the person who took it the worst of anyone who's ever been roasted. Horrifying. And he was pretty public about it, how um, he was just, he was a bad sport. So I was like, okay, I'll go work that into a Howard Stern appearance for the first time. So then it started to roll because, but then the Pam Anderson roast, which was probably five years later, was when I showed up at a club that I was supposed to play seven shows. And they said, oh, you're sold out. Can we add two more? And I go, who's in town? Like, how did I sell out? Like, what is, is it a gay weekend? I don't know what's going on. <laughs> and they're like, no, no, Pam Anderson roast. And my manager had said to me, more people watch the Jeff Foxworthy roast, but more cool people watch the Pam Anderson roast. So you're going to get a lot of attention. So thank God. I mean, I, I, it was all just meant to be. Yeah. What was the, what was sort of, was there a standout moment of the Pam Anderson roast that really, uh, that, that in your mind, uh, sticks out to you? Well, the reason people end up watching it, by the way, was because, I don't know if you remember this because you're younger, Courtney Love was at that roast and she literally made CNN all the news the next day for being drunk and disorderly and like sort of like almost tackling some of the roasters and stuff. I got lucky because she was, again, maybe that's why I wasn't me too either. She was afraid of me. Like she, I literally shot her a look, not a mean look, but I remember getting her on my side and going like this. Like school teacher, they cut it out. <laughs> she, she didn't want to mess with you. It was weird. It was almost like I had a way with her. Like she ended up liking me a lot and kissed me on the lips after, which I was like, oh my God, now I'm <laughs> Yeah. <laughs> so uh, she had behaved badly enough. People wanted to tune in. Plus Pam's super cool. She's so pretty. Oh my God, she's so pretty in person. By the way, I could die. Um, <laughs> and I loved her so much. She had such a good energy. So it was a badass roast. And I think that then it started to really roll, thank goodness. Like, get dresses made. It is the worst. So that's the first surface part, because you don't want to look like a total (laughs) war horse. Then there's the writing of the jokes. So Comedy Central writes the has a staff to write the jokes for the celebrities. But then there's poor me, Jeff Ross, Nick DiPaolo, Jim Norton. <laughs> You're on your own. <laughs> I was like, hey, enjoy getting a team of your own and working it out. And I would actually go to clubs and go to somebody, pretend you're Chevy Chase, pretend you're Al Franken, pretend you're this one. And we would really, me and my little team would go down the list. We'd practice it in the hotel for like five days before. And it'd be like, okay, that's an A, that's an A minus. If it's a B, it's out. Because once you do really well, on a roast, every joke has to be a haymaker or kind of like not living up to your former stuff. So dude, when they were over, I was so tired. I wanted to just, (laughs) I can imagine again. I hated it. I mean, I didn't, I didn't hate doing it because it was cool, but I didn't love the prep. That's, it was really, yeah. What about the experience of being roasted? I'm always so interested in that. I just had a uh, Natasha Legero on a couple of months ago, and we were talking about how it's it can be intense to to be roasted and not know what's going to be thrown at you, and sometimes it hurts more than you would think it would. So, what was your experience of that? Well, I always said, and I this is true. 
a lazy joke hurts my feelings. It's like, you didn't think of me enough to not just yell something stupid. So that's why I didn't like, they were very lazy. A couple of the guys were lazy with Pam Anderson too. And I didn't like that. I was like, oh, really? A tit joke? Really? I mean, it's not even clever. Like, okay. With me, I loved when it was a good joke. And like, okay, my favorite joke about me was when Artie Lang, and it was, poor thing, when he was at his real worst shape ever. Big, big as a house, poor thing. He was very gray looking. It was, I think, Shatner's roast. And he said something like, if I had a nickel for every time somebody said, hey, aren't you Lisa Lampinelli? That's <laughs> a, so like, there's great jokes and you're like, that doesn't hurt your feelings. What hurts you is just lazy. Yeah, that's a great one too, because it's it's both mean and self-deprecating at the same time. <laughs> yeah, that's true. And what's funny about it, there's five categories they're going to go with women. Old, fat, ugly, poor, and oh, unfunny and stupid. So that's six. With me, you never did unfunny or stupid because <laughs> nobody's going to buy that. So you focused on whore sometimes, fat, yes, not old. I never got old because I guess I retired before they noticed. Yeah, and, even uh, though they'll, they'll do old jokes to like some younger comedians, just, younger oh. women. Like that's what, that's what Natasha Leggero was talking about. And I know there was a very famous Sarah Silverman got called old, I think, when she was like 40 but, but uh, P.S., they yeah. look beautiful, so it makes no sense. And, you know, so when I would roast like a Whitney Cummings, I would say stuff like, oh, you know, look at her. She looks like Vinnie Vincent or whatever. You know, she looks like, look at uh, Paul Stanley showed up. Yeah, I think you called her uh, Marilyn Manson. Oh, one, did I? <laughs> one oh, of them. There yeah. you go. That's even a better reference. Snoop's not the only musical artist on the dais. Marilyn Manson is here. Oh, I'm sorry. That's Whitney Cummings. <laughs> People in this business hate you because you're beautiful and thin. Not me! I hate you because you're a cunt. So what happens is you kind of try to be creative. So if the jokes were creative, but also, dude, I'll tell you the inside scoop. Say you're at the roast, right? Everything's on a teleprompter. I was known for laughing at jokes about me and being a great sport. So I would sit there and the teleprompter's way back. And it's, you see the next joke coming. So you'd be able to see it's about you. You'd read it and you'd be able to sit all up and like, <laughs> and I'd really truly laugh. 90% of the time it was real, 10% fake. But I was like, okay, at least I'm prepared. You had five seconds to go. That doesn't hurt my feelings. So I got lucky because a little of the laziness hurt me, but I was like, they're not gonna tell me something I already don't know. And nobody's gonna find out anything from my past. Coming up, Lisa reveals what it was like to roast Donald Trump twice and what she made of Don Jr. on the set of The Celebrity Apprentice. It just might surprise you. Hey there, it's Michelle Norris. I'm host of a podcast called Your Mama's Kitchen. When I travel, I'm usually looking for a way to find a taste of home when I'm not at home. And one of the things I love to do when I am at home is entertain. And Airbnb allows me to do that. When I was in California recently, I rented a house that had a great kitchen. And when we were sitting around the table, we're all thinking, we're in someone else's house. Someone could be in all of our homes as well. If you have a home, but you're not always at home, you have an Airbnb. Your home might be worth more than you think. Find out how much at airbnb.com slash host. Millions of people have lost weight with personalized plans from Noom, like Evan, who can't stand salads and still lost 50 pounds. 
Salads generally for most people are the easy button, right? For me, that wasn't an option. I never really was a salad guy. That's just not who I am. But Noom worked for me. Get your personalized plan today at Noom.com. Real Noom user compensated to provide their story. In four weeks, the typical Noom user can expect to lose one to two pounds per week. Individual results may vary. If you're enjoying this episode, please hit subscribe. We have had some really great conversations about the Comedy Central roasts over the past couple of years, including a long talk with Roastmaster General Jeff Ross in 2019 and last month's episode with the hilarious Natasha Leggero. By subscribing to this podcast, you can listen to those episodes and hear everything else from our free archive. And you'll be the first to hear new episodes when they drop every Tuesday. And while you're at it, please leave a rating and review on Apple Podcasts to let us know how much you love the show and who you want to hear next. Now, back to Lisa Lampanelli. So speaking of people who maybe don't don't take jokes as well, uh, I think we have to talk a little bit about Trump, who you've roasted multiple times, I believe, right? You, yeah. So the first one, I I had I hadn't seen I'd seen the the roast of Trump on Comedy Central, which I think a lot of people have seen. Um, that was in 2011, which you were on, and then what I hadn't seen until I was preparing for this was the uh, the 2004 Friars roast, yeah. where you dressed as a nun and you were a nun who had become a nun because you dated because you slept with Donald Trump, which was a hilarious. Uh, <laughs> true Friars fashion. I was a Jewish nun. Oh, uh, yes. Converted to Catholicism <laughs> yeah. because he was so bad in bed. What you ask would make a nice Jewish girl from Queens decide to become a nun? Dating Donald Trump. I married God instead of Donald Trump. It was not an easy decision. Donald Trump owns more real estate but God has a much smaller ego. But it wasn't Donald's arrogance that broke up an arrogant. Donald Trump was arrogant. One day at the zoo, we saw a baboon masturbating. Donald thought it was because of him. (laughs) Donald was so arrogant, he made me wear a mirror on my stomach. So when he went down on me, he would have something to pleasure himself with. Those jokes were so much fun. And honestly, I am not going to sugarcoat it. I hate Trump with every fiber of my being because I roasted him twice and I was on The Apprentice. I hate him for everything else other than those three things. (laughs) He was such a good sport because he's that Charlie Brown's teacher kind of mentality where he doesn't even hear the joke. He just hears, wah, 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 Donald Trump and laughs. Laughs. He kind of laughs. He kind of smiles. He's not really. He's not a big laugher. He he's, he kind of he kind of smiles. But he actually thanked us. He was like, "That was great." He just likes the attention. So roasting him was like literally a dream come true. So easy. And he wasn't a president back then. He wasn't even. He had talked about it. But I was like, "Well, that's like the kid who says he wants a pony for Christmas. It's not going to happen." Yeah, it was kind of a joke. I mean, and and that was part of the you know, another thing to joke about. Um, there there were a lot of stories I remember with the Comedy Central one that he was very, um, he was like marking up scripts and and saying, you can't joke about how much money I have. Did you well, what the, uh, experience any of that? Well, it wasn't just him. Every roast I've done except Hasselhoff had a rule, a one subject or two or whatever. That are off limits. Yes. And this is how smart I am, dude. Like, how smart am I? 
Okay. <laughs> like, why would you make a joke about it then? It's going to get cut out. You're going to make it. What is this to make them miserable? The money I think goes to a charity. Like why bother? So Pam Anderson, you couldn't make fun of the hepatitis C thing, which I get with Shatner. You couldn't joke about like that. They found his wife dead in a pool. You know? Okay. <laughs> yeah. Off limits. Trump, it was about the bankruptcies. And I was like, well, if it's not going to make it onto TV, like I'm scientific and smart, why bother wasting my time on it? So yeah, there's always something to, to the, that stuff. But with Hasselhoff, by the way, nothing was off limits. He <laughs> He's the only one who's like free for all. Yeah. You did have, you had a lot of good jokes about, uh, about Melania and him. Melania was in the, in the audience, which is just, it's just so funny to watch now, you know, just <laughs> after everything. After that roast, he liked me so much he pushed for me on Celebrity Apprentice. Yeah, like that. so that, that sort of led led directly, the roast led directly to you going on Celebrity Apprentice. Like what's, I guess he must've been a good sport. I also thought, cause I was, they, they also thought cause I was in Saw Comic, I would rough everybody up a little bit and I ended up definitely doing that. So, on the on the show. Yeah, you got into some, some scrapes and some, you know, was that, how much of that is uh, real versus performance? Because you know, you're on a reality show and it's fun to, to cause drama for me 100% real I was that bitch I was so angry all the time because I was so tired because you work so hard on that show it is literally the hardest thing I've ever done the hardest weeks of my life it was the most exhausting thing you had one day off a week every other day was 20 hours there's all those hours in hair and makeup it was really horrible and they didn't edit me anyway like it was yeah. literally, I don't know how the other people did, but I was exactly how I was. So I didn't care if I showed me yelling or crying or screaming because I'm like, that's life. People yell, cry and scream. And if I did the show now, I'd get kicked off the first week because I'm so boring. Yeah. But it's like- They wanted to keep you around probably. Well, they, you were they actually, the second day they were like, wow, you'll be around for a while now, huh? And I'm like, yep. <laughs> I don't like being lied about. I'm in that boardroom and I give credit when credit's due. I tell Mr. Trump the truth every time. Even if I hate her guts, I say, oh, she was good as a project manager. The fact that she lied in my ear, you're too stupid to even do it behind my back, that proves dead from here up. So guess what? You're going down, Miss Universe. I can't take this. Do this thing yourself because you are out of line as usual again. So I was just like, it was a silly moment in time, but again, he didn't shy away from having me on and my hatred for him didn't come in until he started saying he's really running. What about Don Jr. and, and Ivanka? Did you have much interaction with them when you were on that show? Don Jr. was like my ally because we all had like a mentor or whatever. And I just liked <laughs> what, him. What a mentor. I, well, at the time <laughs> he didn't seem as evil. And then I remember he helped me out of a few things, you know, with the, in the show, just, you know, on camera and stuff. He was like an advocate for keep her on kind of thing. Ivanka, not, not much. But uh, then it was afterwards that it started getting super creepy. But what's weird is, like, I had all their phone numbers in my phone, and I still do. I don't know if they're work anymore because I would never call the Trumps. But um, I did, like, some... Oh, I know why. Also, I did some benefits for St. Jude's Children's Hospital that they ran. Because I was like, at the time, they weren't evil yet. I mean, in politics or anything. So I'm like, oh, kids who have cancer. Like, let's do You that. have to hope that the money went to the charity because with them, you never know. But See, that's the part I'm sad about. <laughs> like, I hope my efforts didn't go. But I remember Trump being in the audience for that too. 
And I just hammered him. I mean, hammered. And I have one joke that I regret will never be on the air because I retired, which because I had written a uh, Trump no, roast. What was it? Oh, there, I wrote a Trump roast after he was in office and I was angry at him. And uh, my favorite one was Trump care. Remember, he wanted to replace Obamacare with Trump care. I said, Trump care is so bad for women. Caitlyn Jenner called her doctor and asked for her penis back. <laughs> so I had written such a good roast and I'm like, ah, it'll never make the air. Oh man. Well, yeah, maybe someday you'll have to come out of retirement for the third Trump roast. One more, uh, just before we leave The Apprentice, I wanted to ask just because this became a big thing during the election and these there was sort of like this this search for the the tapes. I don't know if you followed any of that with Tom Arnold. And, yeah. and um there there was and people have talked about how Trump was using the N-word on set and all this stuff. Did you experience uh did you see any of that or have any insight into those uh that kind of stuff. The reason the cast doesn't ever know anything about that is because we're never with him. He literally comes in the morning to give you the assignment and you're like 80 feet from him and he's on mic so you can hear him and because they have to shoot it all beautifully. And then you see him again in the boardroom. So he's not actually going, kick this N-word off the show. <laughs> so that would be the crew would know that more. But um, I don't doubt it. Over the age of 40, I highly doubt someone hasn't let a racial slur fly. Let's just leave it that way. So, I mean, what was your, you know, you said you you kind of got along with him and, and even Don Jr. And then what was your reaction when everything kind of turned during his campaign and then over the last five years? I mean, fury. I literally stopped watching the news. Uh, the first time I watched news, no lie, after that he announced um, and got off, I didn't get off Twitter officially, like, but I stopped tweeting. I was like, I can't, I can't hear this. I, um, like, it was like almost cleansing your life of this grossness. I ended up, I had a best friend at the time who is a news junkie. And I said, just tell me what I need to know. So I'm not <laughs> yeah. informed, you know? And then the inauguration I watched and I was like, oh my God, I could put on CNN without being scared that his name's coming up. And it doesn't come up that much anymore. Now it's Cuomo. That's dummy. Yeah, <laughs> that's the new thing. Man, and he was hot too. What happened? Yeah, you bummed about that one? But, uh, uh, it was kind <laughs> of, we, the Italians took a hit on that one. When you look back at, at your comedy career, are there sort of high points and low points that, that stick out to you? And, and what are those when you when you think about your, your many years in comedy? I'm going to give you the most unpopular answer ever, <laughs> which is... I'm not, I'm, and you know, I couldn't sit here and lie to you for an hour. A woman did a paper on me once for a doctoral thesis or something. This one was super popular. And she was like, what are the 10, your 10 biggest achievements? And I go, oh, this year I made Thanksgiving for the first time. Um, I have a weekly game night. I have this. So I'm naming all this stuff. I adopted Parker, my dog. And she's like, none of those have to do with comedy. <laughs> and I'm like, shit. So I noticed that everything that feels like an achievement had nothing to do with work. And I think that's probably the time I go, why don't I do more of that stuff? So, I mean, if you look, if you, you have, if you're saying to me, okay, but what's the work stuff that you liked most and that you felt the most fulfilling at the time, it's getting on Howard Stern because then it's actually more like getting a smile and a genuine laugh off a hero. Another is meeting Rickles for the second time, having him remember me and say, oh, you're the funny one. But again, that's rooted in approval. So again, it's not healthy. But selling out a Radio City, but the big part of Radio City was that my parents were there and we they were in the audience and stood up and I made fun of them and they like wave. <laughs> so there were cool ass things you do, 
but it's like, at the end of the day, what fills you up? Not that. And what about on the other end? Are there sort of, are there low points that you, that you think about that you just from, from that time? You know, what's weird. My favorite time of comedy, I'm helping these, a couple comics, uh, some local guys, just because they needed some writing help and they're good guys. And I go, you guys are so lucky to be open micing. That is literally the funnest time is when you're not known, <laughs> you're not famous and you're just working on bits and you're so happy. Um, so I don't dislike the beginnings. I didn't dislike when the girls were talking about running around to the different spots. When you do like eight spots a night, that felt really cool and stuff. I think that what I didn't like was that I was older than most of the comics. So I couldn't take, remember they talk in the documentary about that table at the comedy cellar. They make it sound like it's fun. It's fucking hell. There is never five women sitting around it. It was both <laughs> Colin Quinn, Patrice O'Neill, Keith Robinson, Rich Voss, and Jim Norton, and me getting my feelings hurt constantly going, why am I sitting at a table where I'm so hated? So it was fucking miserable. So those chicks are lucky that it's like that now. I don't know if it was that way just for the movie, but I was like, yeah, that's not the table I remember. Yeah. So you didn't enjoy, I mean, yeah, there's this sort of romanticized the table at the comedy cellar. Everyone's making fun of each other, but everybody loves it. That was not your experience. I loved performing there because that's one of those Howard Stern moments where you're like, oh, I'm allowed to work at this iconic club it's a it's a club in the in this in the other sense of the word it's a you know to yeah, be invited in there and to be part of it is a big deal yeah i mean you had a kill like you, you if you're doing weekend spots you have to kill and i loved it because i was a killer you know and um i always liked being the comic that men didn't want to follow and i always always like being the comic that lucian at the comic strip because the comic strip used to be the iconic place this guy lucian hold used to look at me and say oh, the crowd's dying, Lisa. Uh, just go up and fix that. He was very like, oh, you know, he had a British accent, even though he was British. I'm like, what's going on? So that felt good. But I did not like sitting around getting made fun of. I couldn't take it. And I always was like, wait a minute, I'm an insult comic on stage. Why are they being mean to me in real life? Like, get more stage time, asshole. <laughs> and you know, the greatest part was Patrice O'Neill and I hated each other. We hated each other. I actually don't think he hated me as much as I hated him. But he was so mean to me. And a shrink said to me, he's your greatest teacher because he's going to teach you how to be resilient. And that's absolutely true. But when he died, the New York Magazine or somebody called me and said, you know, are you sad he died? I go, fuck no. I go, everyone who's mean to me dies. Like literally, dude, <laughs> everyone who's ever been mean to me in comedy is dead right now. Except Louis C.K. who, you know. He's dead to, the, to, to a lot of people. <laughs> I think so. And I just go, Patrice was mean and I'm not going to pretend I liked him because he's dead. That would be dishonest. And his wife emailed me and said, Patrice would be so proud of you for telling the truth. And I felt like that's true. He just wanted the truth. And I think he considered me not a truth teller. So he was mean to me. But isn't it great how in the end, if you just work on yourself enough, you can just forgive everybody and forgive yourself for like not being the person you thought you were going to be this tough chick and this resilient chick. It's like, no, just like, you're just you. Yeah. There's a, that, that's another documentary that just came out as the uh, Patrice O'Neill documentary. I don't know if you got to see that or if you would want to watch it, but uh, would. it would be interesting. Now I would, because I'm like the, the forgiveness to actually, oh my God, dude, I forgot to even mention this. And I keep blanking this out and I don't know why. Patrice called me and apologized before he died. Really? They got it on the air. He called Paul and Ron's show in Miami. I think it's West Palm or something. He had been in studio and I was so afraid of him. And this is years after I was famous. Like I was already a big shot. 
he was playing a club and I was playing a big theater. So of course my ego was like, yeah, that guy, you know, look at me, I'm selling out 3000 seats. He's a loser in a club. Well, do you know, I was so scared of him. I made them text me after he left the building so I could come in. Cause I wasn't physically scared of him because he would never hit anybody. He called during the show and said, I must've done something terrible that I can't remember to Lisa. And I'm so sorry. And wow. I almost cried. And I was like, wow, he really, he is a good guy. He was a good guy. No one would think he would do that. I mean, yeah, I don't think he was known for apologizing. Isn't that beautiful? (laughs) I'm like, everybody gets to that point where you just go, I could live with the bitterness or I could apologize. I called so many people during COVID and apologized for shit. Oh yeah. It was just like, (laughs) sorry, I yelled. I now know what that feels like because I was just yelled at. So it's good. It cleanses your soul. What did did Louis C.K. do to you? No, he was just dismissive. I didn't like being dismissed, you know, and he um, had no use for me. He was one of those who was such a comedy snob that he was nice to me before he saw my act. Then he wasn't nice anymore. And he just like would look at me and ignore me. And I was like, that's not nice. Like, you don't have to like my act, not to say hi. Like... I was just, I think it's because I had jobs. Like I was a journalist up until age 30. I knew you should just say hi to everybody. I'm like, why are, even if you don't like. Just a base level uh, <laughs> politeness. Right. So it's really funny. I used to have a joke on stage when people would ask me, who are your favorite comics? I'll say, no, who are the comics who are nice to you? I go, oh, the, the, the interesting list is the ones who weren't. And I'd name them and I'd go, Greg Giraldo, Patrice O'Neill, Joan Rivers. What do they all have in common? And somebody would invariably yell, they're dead. And I go, and that's what you get when you make fun of Lisa. <laughs> but it's just a good coincidence. I, I didn't know about Joan Rivers. I mean, that, that must have hurt maybe more than the other ones, right? Much more. And I'll tell you why. She did it on the Howard Stern show and her history was off, meaning she didn't fact check. And that bugs me when somebody doesn't tell the truth about someone. I had just gotten married to a guy, Jimmy Big Balls who I'm now divorced from because we noticed it wasn't working and before we hated each other. And I did no sexual jokes. I talked about his balls because Howard loved that, but nothing sexual at all and just insults. So my special had just come out and I was like so happy because it was all different and it wasn't sexual and it was just funny. And she, she was on Stern and she said something about, oh, this Lampinelli, all she does is talk about black guys and dicks. And it was like literally five years since I'd done that. So I was like, bitch, you're lazy. (laughs) So of course I'm defensive. Howard Stern News calls me and I go, fuck that bitch. Maybe take the fucking miracle out, you old C word. Um, Why don't you just listen, you know, listen to the album. It's been five years, update your references. (laughs) But then she did it again. And I don't know what happened to me in between those appearances, but I, Joan, when they called me again to gossip, I go, Joan Rivers doesn't owe me a listen. She's a legend. She gets to have opinions about everything she wants. The fact that she mentioned my name was enough. So see, that's a lot of therapy in between those. Yeah. (laughs) You got to let it go. It did hurt enough, man. Yeah, because I'm sure she's someone who you looked up to, uh, you know, growing up. I literally had two cassettes in my car in the beginning of the career when you drive around to North Carolina and you can't afford a hotel, so you just have to stay awake. I had two cassettes that I bought at truck stops, which was Joan Rivers and Mom's Maybelline, and they were worn out. I just found them because I'm decluttering my house, and I'm like, oh my God, 
I love Joan. So yeah, when somebody you like if Howard Stern hated me, it would have crushed me. Rickles, same thing. But then again, if I hear now that say somebody turns on me, I probably could work through it a little easier than back then. I wonder if your change to your new career and life coaching and this sort of more spiritual side, do you ever think about it as kind of atoning for anything or, um, you know, are, are there things that you that you regret or feel bad about that you're kind of trying to to make up for with with the, your work that you do now? I don't think so because I don't think that's what can motivate you. I think everything had to happen that way. Like, do I regret like screaming at the lady in Vancouver because she triggered me and said something like, you know, uh, I remember she saying she was a drunk and she said something like, you. We, we paid you. We get to yell whatever we want. That, for some reason, always set me off. And I <laughs> yeah. literally, dude, spent no less than 20 minutes on her telling how... I mean, I'm oddly enough still proud of it. So maybe it's... <laughs> <laughs> yeah, maybe you don't regret it. Because <laughs> she was really mean. And I was like, really? Well, you're plain. I go, you're not even ugly. You're not pretty. You're not ugly. You're plain, which means no one will ever notice you. So yes, there are things <laughs> that I go, I probably made somebody want to really kill themselves but it's a weird superpower I have that I don't want to use anymore. I would say, so I don't really, I can't regret it, but I kind of wish I hadn't had the chemistry and upbringing that that was looked at as the best way to handle that. Yeah. <laughs> you know, so yeah. we do, we, we can only every day do better. Yeah. So what I want to do, what, how I want to end is um, to talk about some of the uh, comedians who have made you laugh the hardest in your life. And just to to start, you, you know, you mentioned those two cassette tapes, but when you think back to your childhood growing up, is there a, a comedian or a, a piece of comedy that, that really made you laugh uh, harder than anything else? Well, it's funny because this is, I should have known back then, we never watched stand-up as kids. The other was the three channels, you know, two, four, and seven, or whatever CBS, NBC, and ABC. But they had the Dean Martin celebrity roasts. So my parents loved those. I should have noticed that that's the kind of comedy I like because they all looked like they were friends. You ever see those roasts? I mean, they have the commercial form. I bought them all. I go, wow, they all had so much fun. I bet they all know each other. And they don't. <laughs> it's just like the Comedy Central ones. Those were what made me laugh. So it wasn't anybody specific. Like I did like, you know, Foster Brooks, Red Buttons, Don Rickles, you know, but the roast form is what I thought was funny. But I never watched stand up. I never watched like anyone growing up. And what's funny is after about seven, eight years of doing comedy, somebody at a show gave me Hello Dummy by Rickles on vinyl, which I still have. And they're like, oh, you'll like this. And I'm like, holy crap. Like that's gold. So yeah, that was always my go-to right there. And then when you think back to all of the roasts that you did, is there a, a comedian or a joke or a moment that just stands out as, as the funniest uh, thing that you, that you experienced during all of those? I mean, they were so difficult and miserable. Not really. <laughs> I did like the camaraderie I felt, believe it or not, because we all had the same manager. I had the same manager at the time of Foxworthy, Larry the Cable Guy. So when I was like, the Larry the Cable Guy Roastmaster, that felt really good because I could get all the comedians back if they said something about me. So I always have <laughs> yeah. stuff. You get you have many chances at when you're the when you're the, yes. the roastmaster. You have revenge. So that was really fun. I also am the proudest thing I've ever done on a roast, and nobody knows this, is I was so furious at what some of the guys said about Pam Anderson, because there she is looking cute as hell, 
She's clearly a human being. She's clearly a person with feelings because everyone is. And at the time I was like, why do these guys, like, it was like gross, the stuff they were saying, but not funny. If it was gross and funny, that's awesome. That's fine. Yeah. So I saw, did you ever see in somebody's face how they just look like they're just putting on a smile? And I could tell she was maybe going to cry, even looked it. And I go, uh oh. So I went through my whole script, crossed out every Pam Anderson joke that was mean. I said two little mild jokes about her that you'll see on the tape are very mild. And then I was so proud of myself because, and then I got all of them back for her. So I felt like yeah. a protector. So that's my <laughs> yeah. favorite badass roast moment that I punked out and I defended Pam Anderson. <laughs> <laughs> that's great. Well, she's so cute. Who wouldn't? Yeah. And then the last one is, uh, is there a, a comedian who's sort of uh, coming up now, um, uh, someone, a, a generation below you or, or something like that, that you really want to champion or, or you think is really funny, who you want to shout out or think people should should check out? I'm a little offended that there hasn't been a super famous male gay comedian. Like literally, try to think of one. Super no, I know. Yeah. It is I, bizarre I, I, to me. There are so many uh, gay women, really famous gay women and comedians and not a lot of... Fortune, yeah. Feimster, and freaking the one, you know, the one, you know what I'm talking about. <laughs> the one who's, she, she, she was terrific. But here's the deal. I discovered this guy. I don't think I discovered him. I'm like playing. His name is Gus Constantelis. He is Greek, gay, child of immigrants, and does not only... Does he do great stand-up? He has a pretty decent following on media because he does a character called the Greek mom and it resonates with immigrants really well. And it's funny, but really a lot of heart, which I think comedy has to have both. He is fantastic. And he and I do this little storytelling show together. I go, that's a kid. I want him to be the first really famous gay male comic. I just am shocked there isn't one, aren't you? Yeah, no, it's really true. And I think it's also, yeah, it's something that's come up too with um with uh, Saturday Night Live until recently. They had never had a, a gay male cast member. And Bowen Yang is yeah. it. By the way, yeah. the woman who I couldn't think of was Hannah Gadsby, which oh, yes, I mean, yes, how yes. beautiful were those shows? That's a genius right there. I mean, you got to really be a genius to come up. But this kid, Gus, is ridiculous. And I go, okay, dude, you're going to make it because it's like totally bizarre and homophobic that this hasn't happened yeah no so everyone that, that's a great recommendation and everyone should uh should check him out that's um, really good well thank you so much for doing this this was just an incredible uh conversation and i really really enjoyed getting to talk to you well you're cool as hell uh, let me tell you something i'm gonna plug two things watch this movie fx on hulu if lisa lampanelli likes a movie you gotta watch it because I hate everything. Doc, you know, when it comes to comedy. that's high praise, yeah. Well, the comedy documentary to me is always a disappointment. This isn't, and also I have a live stream event coming up on April twenty fourth. Go to leaplampanelli.com. It is hilarious. It's a storytelling show with me and Gus. Yeah, perfect. Um, well, awesome. Thank you so much. Have a great, uh, have a great rest of your day, and um, hopefully we'll get to talk again sometime. Thanks. God bless. Bye. Bye. Talk to you later. I want to thank Lisa Lampanelli so much for getting into all of that with me on today's episode. You can get tickets for her upcoming storytelling show at lisalampanelli.com. The new documentary, Hysterical, which, by the way, counts another recent guest on this show, Jessica Kirsten, among its producers, premieres on FX this Friday, April 2nd at 9 p.m. Especially if you are a comedy nerd like me, I highly recommend you check it out. 
If you want to support The Last Laugh, please help us out by leaving a rating and review on Apple Podcasts. We want as many people to hear this show as possible, and you can help by spreading the word and sharing it with your friends. You can find me on Twitter at Matt Wilstein and at TheDailyBeast.com. And if you're not already, please follow at LastLaughPod on Instagram, where you can see photos and videos from all of our episodes. The Last Laugh is distributed by Acast for The Daily Beast, with audio production by Jesse Cannon. Our theme music is by Claude, who you can find on Instagram at Claude.mp3. You can find this show every week on Apple Podcasts or wherever you listen to podcasts. And as always, you can find show notes and highlights from each episode on thedailybeast.com. See you next week. Even when we're on a budget, we still deserve nice things. Quince is a place to scoop up stunning high-end goods for 50 to 80% less than similar brands. They have buttery soft cashmere sweater starting at $50, luxurious Italian leather bags, and so much more. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. Get the high-end goods you'll love without the high price tag with Quince. Go to quince.com style for free shipping and 365-day returns.